promise. Help! I'm just kidding. Today, we are going to hit a mid-season break in the book of Judges. Uh, because next week's Easter, and I know some of you are breathing a sigh of relief. You're like, man, I'm glad he's not preaching on Judges at Easter. Uh, it's something I would do, but I'm not going to do it this year. I'm actually going to preach on Exodus next week. And so I want you right now to think about who am I going to invite to Easter? Who am I going to invite to Easter? And then who am I going to invite to Easter? People are looking for a place to go to church on Easter. And they can come here at 6 o'clock on Saturday night and then come to this service. Or we even have our 1045 service. So be sure to invite, invite, invite. And then the week after Easter, we're going to preach a sermon that I call the week after Easter sermon. And then for, for four weeks after that, we're going to preach the book of Ruth, which I've already read and studied hard on this. I've wrote the first sermon. Man, it's so good. Ruth is a beautiful story that actually takes place during the time period of Judges, which isn't hard. Judges is like a 450-year uh, period. And then we'll come back to Judges, if you can believe it, and that'll take us all the way to the beginning of summer. That's the part, if you can believe it. Summer will be here eventually. And hopefully we'll go not from 70 degrees to 35 degrees every other day. My nose can't handle it. I think I've well, whatever. You guys don't want to hear about my allergies. But today we finish up Gideon. Gideon. And I titled the sermon this. You ready? When the good goes bad. When the good goes bad. You like that? I like it. Have you ever pulled food out of the fridge only to notice that what was once good is now what? Bad. That's right. Have you ever taken it a step too far? You ever eaten spoiled food? Show of hands. You ever just taken it too far? What's your test? What's your check down, right? I start with the eyes. I look at it. And then where do you go next? The nose, right? Give it a little sniff. And then if it's passing up to that, what do you last do? You get a little taste, right? That's when you discover this isn't good anymore. This is bad, right? Uh, I once bought a package of, uh, uh, I guess it was St. Louis style ribs, and man, they look good. I was so excited to make them and smoke them on my grill that I know how to make into a smoker with some brick. You don't care about that. So uh, I, I get them over the sink and I, I slice that vacuum seal bag open. And what, what hit me in the face, I think, I know some of you are going to throw up, so I'm not going to go too far into this. It was the smell of death. And, and I immediately, I said, open the door. And I ran and I threw them across the parking lot. Get them out of my house. That's how bad it was. I, I went to the place I bought them. I said, I need my money back for those ribs. They said, did you bring them back? I said, no, they're in the dumpster. That's where they belong. That's where spoiled things go. But I don't, I don't know where you are on that. But I, I have since learned to trust the old nose. The nose knows what to do when you, when you do that. And so when we look at Gideon, it is essentially he is those ribs. <laughs> he, he looks good. He starts good. But he ends bad. I, I hasten to say he doesn't break bad. He doesn't really like all of a sudden just kind of one day wake up and decide to be a villain. What, what he is, is the very embodiment of the phrase we've said over and over and over again, that we are one generation away from total extinction. And Gideon embodies that. And people typically, when you do a sermon series on judges, which people just don't do that often, if we're being quite honest, or even when you're in your Bible reading, or you're, if you grew up in Sunday school learning about Gideon, here's the parts you learned. Uh, he was a mighty warrior. Remember that part? Mighty warrior. Ooh, right? WrestleMania is going on this week. Uh, you remember the fleece part. You remember the part Rusty talked about, like drinking from streams, small army fighting. But people rarely, rarely, rarely go over the last part 
of Gideon because he spoils. We just jump on ahead to Samson because, you know, that's a cool story, which, I mean, Samson's not exactly like a love story either, but we'll get to that in like around summer. Gideon, what we find out, he doesn't do well with all the victory. He doesn't do well. He certainly doesn't end well. So if you look at Judges 8, I'm going to summarize. There's two groups of people that begin to really show this uh, in Gideon's story. Where we left Gideon last week, he was on a high, right? He was being basically carried off the field, Rudy Rudiger style, uh, because he had just taken 300 people and defeated 100,000, and he won that battle without losing a single soldier. Amen, yay God, that was awesome. And then they're on their victory march back home, that's typical, and that's when the real war begins for Gideon. And he, he encounters two groups of people. The first is Ephraim. And in verse 1 of chapter 8, it says, Then the men of Ephraim said to him, What is this that you have done to us not to call us when you went to fight Midian? And they accused him fiercely. So what do you think their problem is? Hey, you left us out. That hurts. We wanted to be a part of that, right? What's, what's cool here is that Ephraim, they're a large, wealthy tribe, and they seem to have had that, that part of them hurt. We would have been a real help to you. Why didn't you ask us? We got left out. And so basically they give Gideon a good cussing. If you were from where I'm from, that's what we'd say. And, and, and here's what the second group then, he, he comes across them. And in Judges 8, 4, it says, And Gideon then came to the Jordan and crossed over, he and the 300 men who were with him, exhausted yet pursuing. And so he said to the men of Succoth, Please give loaves of bread to the people who follow me, for they exhausted, and I'm pursuing after Ziba and Zalmunna, the kings of Midian. Remember, they ran off and they took after them. And so what is he asking this, this town for? Food. Give us food. We need some supply. And the officials of Succoth said, Are the hands of Ziba and Zalmunna already in your hand that we should give bread to your army? And so Gideon said, Well then, and I think it was in that tone, Well then, when the Lord has given Ziba and Zalmunna into my hand, I will flail your flesh with the thorns of the wilderness and with briars. That doesn't sound very good. This is the home team. And, and from there he went up to Penuel and spoke to them in the same way. And the men of Penuel answered him as the men of Succoth had answered. And he said to the men of Penuel, when I come again in peace, I will break down this tower. This is Gideon. This is the mighty warrior. It's not a good look, really. He's starting to show a little bit of arrogance. Would you agree with me? A little bit of arrogance, maybe thinking a little too highly of himself. Hey, they carried me off the field yesterday. You better give me what I asked for. And if you don't, I'm going to come back here. I'm going to whip all of you. That's what he said. Notice, though, with the wealthy tribe, he didn't do that. We kind of don't get a response. Smaller tribe, harsh tone, actually goes as far as beating them. He then levels a town and kills all their inhabitants. Wow. You, you did all that because they wouldn't give you a sandwich? Like, Gideon. He didn't think he could beat the wealthy tribe, but he could take these guys out. This is Gideon. But do you know what, what I'm starting to see in Gideon's life? I don't know if you, you noticed, but like post-battle post Gideon doesn't look a lot like pre-battle Gideon. 
Uh, he, he's a little arrogant now. He's starting to think a little highly of himself. You'll notice some things he doesn't do. He, he doesn't pray about it anymore. He doesn't seek counsel. Remember, two weeks ago, he went and got 10 men to go with him. Now he's saying, I'm going to come back and beat you with briars. He just starts to kind of do, you know, whatever's right in his own eyes. Does that sound familiar? I mean, we're seven weeks in on Judges. That should sound so familiar that you're even beginning to see it in your own life. He just sort of does what's right in his own eyes. His old ways are making a comeback. Do yours. When God, you know, hey, we just sang that song, hallelujah, hallelujah, whatever goes right. And it's awesome, right? And we believe that and we say it and we know it and we live it. But man, oh man, that grip of death, it, it didn't just quit. It wants to regrip. Gideon, you may remember, was previously known as a wimpy sort of coward guy. And then God gave him a new name. Do you remember what the new name was? Not in Jerubbabel. That's the townspeople gave him that. But he got a new name, Mighty Warrior. And, and he lived like that. And he did great and mighty things. And then his old ways started to creep back in. He started doing whatever was right in his own eyes. Gideon. He started to live like everybody else would live. He had already forgot who was going to fight his battles. Who fights our battles for us? The Lord, God, the mighty King, Jesus, Holy Spirit. That is who fights my battles. God gets the wins. He uses us to do it, but God gets the wins. And it would appear as though Gideon's heart is beginning to spoil. Not immediately, but I bet if we were to give it a little sniff test, we might go, oh, that don't smell too good. Maybe I'll taste it. <laughs> but guess what? This, that, honestly, this is the most amazing part of the story. Guess what? The people loved it. They couldn't get enough of this version of Gideon. They loved it. Like, like he's whipping people on the way home, and they're like, yes, we want more of that. Oh, really? Huh. Yeah, because they haven't changed yet either. It even says in verse 22, the men of Israel said to Gideon, rule over us. Huh. That's dangerous. You and your son and your grandson also, which you don't even have those yet. We want you to be our ruler. Rule over us. For you have saved us from the hand of who? Midian. Remember, who's their biggest issue? Is it Midian? What else is it? themselves, their memory. In other words, they're saying, Gideon, we want you to be our king. We want you to be our dynasty, right? We want you are our guy. We want you. And Gideon said to them, I'll not rule over you. Oh, that's pretty good. That's pretty good. That's a good response. And my son will not rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. And we're like, yes, you said he's spoiled. Well, just wait. Pretty good response. God is our king. Good, good, good. But oh, how the heart gets in the way again in verse 30. Now, Gideon had 70 sons, which is a lot. That's a lot. Like some of you come from big families. You have 69 brothers. It doesn't list how many daughters. And he had many wives, which, you know, we would, we would just to be clear, we're, we're in the you have one wife camp here at Keystone. One one, 
at a time, right? 70's a lot. Start, and actually, that's starting to sound a little king-like. If you read a lot of the Old Testament, that's like, okay, starting to kind of act like a king. Normal dudes didn't have many wives in 70 kids or, or sons. So, but you know what? He's Gideon, mighty warrior, Jerubbabel. Let's give him the benefit of the doubt. In 831, it says, And his concubine who was with Shechem also bore him a son, and he called his name, you want to say that one with me? Abimelech. Great name. Now, you'll remember, he said, I don't want to be your king. God is our king. But then he named a kid Abimelech. And for those of you that don't speak Hebrew and don't study Old Testament the way I do, uh, this isn't even hilarious until I tell you what Abimelech means. Do you know what Abimelech means? It means, literally, my dad is the king. He named his son, my dad is the king. How do you say, I don't want to be your king, but then name a kid, my dad is the king? Can you imagine that? What do you think he's starting to think? I think he's starting to think he's a king. Maybe Gideon sees himself right there. He then starts collecting taxes in verse 27. He even makes an ephod for himself. An ephod, get get this, that's a vest worn by the high priest. You didn't make ephods for yourself. It's what the high priest would wear when they would go into the presence of God to make requests on behalf of the people. You didn't make one of those for yourself. He made one for himself. It was only the tribe of Levi. Oh, and Gideon made one for himself. It'd be like if one of you made yourselves an eagle's jersey and put your name on the back and said, I need to come out the tunnel with the team today. That's, you're like, I don't think so. That's kind of for NFL players only. But here he is. He's acting like a king, and now he's saying, I'm going to be godlike also. I'll be the one that takes the requests to God for you. But I don't want to be your king. You think his heart is beginning to spoil? <laughs> Give a little sniff test when you read through that chapter. Hey, we already know how his story ends. Maybe we should look at our own heart today. You want to give your own heart a little, little sniff test? You guys tired of sniffing? When was the last time you did that just for yourself? Like, you know, when was the last time you looked in the mirror and thought, am I, am I beginning to spoil it's amazing what you see with Gideon. It's like no, no leader has ever had this, at least up to this point, this amount of courage, this amount of faith, this amount of anointing, yet he quickly slips and it will eventually lead him astray and all of his kids astray. And he will plunge Israel into the lower cycle of the judge's cycle because he got too big for his britches, as my mother would say. This is also a judge's first. The people begin to fall away from the judge while he is in power, not after. Typically, they experience a couple decades or seven years of like good churching, you know, <laughs> but not here. I see it as a warning to us, Keystone. I mean, at the beginning of this year, we, we set a big vision. Remember two months ago, we said in 10 years, we want to have 10 Keystone churches. Praise God. We want to baptize 1,000 people a year as a Keystone family. In fact, we got one scheduled for Saturday night at our Easter service. If you want to baptize Saturday night, you let me know. I'd love to baptize more than one that night. One is awesome. I can't wait. And what if we do it? What if in, in 2033, we're all in here high-fiving each other, and then we get a little big for our britches, and we begin to think a little highly of ourselves? Could we begin to spoil a little bit? Think we did it? What should we do, or what should we be on the lookout for, for heart spoilage? What are some signs that, you know, 
Maybe this isn't going the way we thought it was going. Warning signs, if you will, that your heart is spoiling. You want to hear some? I hope so. I got three. How about this? Is your prayer time becoming infrequent? Is your prayer time becoming infrequent? We see Gideon kind of stops doing that, at least on the page. Angel of the Lord isn't visiting him anymore. Is, is his prayer time becoming infrequent? I mean, we'll say this. I can say this. Keystone's a praying church. We have been a while. That's a culture of prayer here. Are you part of that culture? I know this. When you're desperate for God, is it easy to pray? Yes. Easy to pray when you're desperate, right? When things are terrible, my prayer life is on fire, man. Whew, like they write books about my prayer life when things are bad. What about when things are good? Do you still pray that way? How quickly does it spoil? What's the shelf life of your prayer life? Hmm? Let me remind you this. Prayer, prayer is not a discipline. It's life. It's like breathing. No one, you don't discipline yourself to breathe. Now, your watch may tell you to breathe, you know, stuff like that. I don't mean that. You don't set a goal. This week, for 10 minutes every morning, I'm going to... I'm going to breathe. I'm going to use my lungs. You know, no, you may, right now you're consciously thinking about breathing. So you are, but in a few minutes, you'll forget this and you'll just breathe on your own. That's your prayer life. You should be so connected to the father that you are always speaking to him and listening to him. Is that what your prayer life is like? Because if it isn't, and I'm not setting some unattainable goal for you, I'm saying if it isn't that or approaching that, I, I would check your heart. How about this? Second thing, you got prayer. How about this? Are you isolating from others? Are you, are you trying to get away from people and it's hurting you? I've said it a million times if I haven't said it any. Solitude, time alone with the Lord, that's a blessing. Solitude, blessing, isolation, curse, curse. We talk about death. Death has no hold on me. Death has no grit, lost its grip on me. But guess what? Do you know what death would love to do? Get you alone away from all these people and start feeding you lies. And that happens in isolation. But when you're around people, say in a community group or a relationship where someone is maybe not holding you like oh, accountable to this, 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 but I mean someone that really knows you and can really watch out for you, then they see when you begin to not just hear lies, but believe lies. And you know what happens sometimes when we get around people that want to speak into our life, we begin saying, oh, no, 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 that truth hurts. So I'm going to actually stay away from you. That's why people don't go to the doctor. I don't go to the doctor. He's going to tell me this, this, this. Yeah, because you're sick. Like, we all see it, man. I've said that over and over. Isolation is a curse for years. Can I tell you something? A little pastor honesty here. I fell for it last year. I fell for it. I began to isolate. I have a great family, a great team that works with me. I have an awesome church. I love everything about it. But here's what I began to notice. I'm in a community group. I began to notice that when I was with people I loved, I was not present with them. I was thinking too much for the future, becoming a little distant. And so I met with somebody for about six months. And you know what he told me? You need some friends that don't need anything from you and you don't need anything from them. So he told me. And I said, well, I got these three guys that I've kind of not been doing that with. And my guy that was talking to me was like, he's, he's my kind of counselor. He said, that's dumb. I don't know. That's how I do counseling. <laughs> High on that empathy and compassion. Well, that's dumb. 
What are you doing that for? Beautiful. By God's grace, here's what God did for me. I was able to reestablish some relationships with some men that know me really well and can speak truth into my life that don't work for me. I'm not in community group with them. They're not my kid. I'm not married to them. And they just spoke truth into my life. And the isolation, I began to, whatever the opposite of isolate is. Anybody know that? Connect, community. Like, I really don't know. I probably should look it up. But what I know is we all need it. Proverbs 18 says, an isolated person seeks his own desires. And I found that was becoming true with me. I was having an awesome time here, awesome time with my family, but I was, I was having a hard time being present in the moment. It was isolating. So is your prayer time becoming infrequent? Are you isolating from others? How about this? If, if you want a little warning sign, how is your generosity? I find these go hand in hand. Gideon begins to take people's money, and we even read that he makes for himself a suit of clothes made out of gold. That's taxation. That's pretty much it. I don't want to get into the politics of that, but I pretty much feel like that's the season we're in right now, isn't it? April 15th, I'm referring to when they collect our taxes, and they make a suit of gold. (laughs) I want to give that a sniff test. But in your own life, you know, like, how's your generosity? This isn't a manipulative ploy to get you to give money to our church. I actually don't worry about that. Maybe I should a little more, but I actually believe if God's going to send people that are for the mission and on the mission, then that's an area that I can't control. I can control what we do as a mission, but I can't control what you give. What I can control is how I pray for you to be generous. I can control what I give, but that's pretty much it. I'll tell you this, uh, if you give your own generosity a little sniff test, do you, do you find that, do you, do you have enough? Uh, listen, I've not taken a vow of poverty, all right? I believe God gives us and loves to give us nice things. He loves to bless us to be a blessing. But what I'm saying is, are you generous with what he's giving you? Is my heart beginning to spoil when I think that, you know, I need more and more and more? That having... Things is more important than giving away or sending, and it just doesn't have to be money. I recognize that. There's all sorts of things that could be a treasure. But if we were to just give three quick sniffs, what would you smell in your prayer life, your community life, your generosity? I encourage you to sniff those later. Let's get back to Gideon, who's about to die. Uh, Spoiler. (laughs) Sorry. And Gideon, the son of Joash, died. It says it right there. He is dead. In a good old age. Doesn't tell us how old. It just says it's good and old. And was buried in the tomb of Joash's father at Ophrah of the Abirazites. We look down at verse 32. It says, as soon as Gideon died. Crazy, right? The people of Israel turned again and whored after the Baals, which is harsh. And made Baal Berith their God. Baal Wrangler was dead. So let's worship Baal again. And the people of Israel did not remember the Lord their God. Literally, literally, like from yesterday. 
The Lord their God, who had delivered them from the hand of their enemies on every side, and they did not show steadfast love to the family of Jerubael, that is Gideon, in return for all the good that he had done for Israel. Remember, they were like, we want you to lead us. We want your kids to lead us. We want you to be our dynasty. Then he dies, and they're like, let's worship Baal. Gideon's dead. Let's go back the way it used to be. Like a lot of relapses, this one really hits hard. Let me give you the highlights of chapter 9. Abimelech, right? Now Abimelech, the son of Jerubel, went to Shechem to his mother's relatives and said to them and to the whole clan of his mother's family, there's a bunch of them, say in the ears of all the leaders of Shechem. You know what he's saying? Tell them, tell them this. Which is better for you, that all 70 of the sons of Gideon rule over you or that one rule over you? Remember also that I am your bone and your flesh. And his mother's relatives spoke all these words on behalf of the ears of the leaders of Shechem and their hearts inclined to follow Abimelech, for they said, he is our brother. And they gave him 70 pieces of silver out of the house of Baal, Berith. Whew, that's dangerous, right? And the false god is the one paying it off with which Abimelech hired worthless and reckless fellows who followed him. And he went to his father's house at Ophrah and killed his brothers, the sons of Jerubael, 70 men on one stone. But Jotham, the youngest son, was left, for he hid himself. So I'm disgusted by this. This is what has come of Gideon's courageous victory. This is where it goes. You better sniff harder on that heart of yours. You better take it seriously. It's important to point out here that Shechem, which is where all this went down, that's a very holy place for them. For this to have occurred at Shechem, that like everybody knew this place. This is the birthplace of Judaism where God gave Abraham the promise and then renewed it with Joshua. That is where this is going down. That'd be like uh, in our, in our like context here, because it's hard for us sometimes to get that. That'd be like uh, if Abimelech was like a presidential candidate for the United States and went to Gettysburg and said, we need to bring back antebellum slavery. That's, that's what he's doing. It was this bad. He goes down there and he kills 68 of 70 of Gideon's son. Obviously, he didn't kill himself, and Jotham hides. Then he goes to the leaders, Jotham does, and, and he tells them a parable. He gives them a story of what's about to happen. He talks about these trees in the forest, and he says, first they go to an olive tree, and they ask the olive tree, do you want to be king? And the olive tree says, no, I'm making too much money off my olives. And then he goes to a fig tree, and the same thing happens. And every tree he answers the same way. Nobody wants it. Grapevine, even there. Nobody wants it. And eventually, they find the tumbleweed, and they ask the tumbleweed, do you want to be our king? And he's like, yeah, I guess, sure. But first, you've got to burn down all the other trees. That's the parable. He goes and tells the leaders of all the tribes and all the clans. And then Jotham says to the leaders at Shechem, this is is what you have done. This is going to come back on you. And evidently, there were some good sons that could have led, could have led Israel, but they didn't do it. They didn't want to. Gideon hadn't modeled that for them. Instead, he modeled getting rich and calling yourself a priest because his heart had spoiled. Eventually, all those leaders, which we see in the, the uh, uh, parable as trees, they anoint him as king. 
And then they revolt and they come to him and he fights back and they flee to a city tower. This actually happened. They flee to a tower, all these leaders, and Abimelech gathers a bunch of tumbleweeds, literally, and he packs them around the tower and he sets them on fire and he burns a thousand leaders inside. This is Abimelech. This is your king. This is what you've done. Now, in the melee, someone opens a window and drops a huge stone. It was actually a lady from the top floor, drops a stone on his head, and it hurts him bad, and he knows he's going to die. And here's his last words. He called quickly to the young man, his armor bearer, and said to him, draw your sword and kill me, lest they say of me a woman killed him. That's your mighty leader, trained by Gideon. And his young man thrust him through, and he died. Where do you think it should go from here? When you do a little sniff test, where where should we go? What what are we to do with that? Is this a cautionary tale of a king gone bad? Is this a story of a great leader that's just spoiling? Or is this story in the Bible, God's holy word, as a reminder to us to check yourself, to look at your heart, You may have noticed Abimelech's the first judge where the actual oppression comes not from outside of Israel. It comes from within. He's the one doing it. He's one of their own. So here's where I want to spend my last five minutes with you this morning. I want to spend the last five minutes not talking about Gideon or Abimelech. I want to spend our last five, six minutes here talking about our heart. And I want to take a look at our heart. A few moments ago, we did a little sniff test for spoilage. Did you smell anything? Did anything give you a little pause, a little caution? Like, oh my goodness. My, my whole point today is to show you that the problem may not be out there somewhere waiting to come and get you. It might be your own heart. So why don't we invite God to examine our heart and then show us what he sees? You remember back in the fall, we did that series called Space. I really loved it. And I asked God uh, that question, and, and, and hopefully you've spent six months answering it. The God, examine my heart and show me what you see. Hopefully you did that. Think how much uh, a ground you could cover if God examined your heart and shows you what he sees. It is, it is prideful to think that I can get through things without God. It's prideful. So let's take a moment and look at our heart. Why don't we just close our eyes and and do that? I think it's a little bit easier sometimes for God to work on us when we have our eyes closed. So so just look at your own heart, your own life. Like what is currently, what is coming out of your life? Where are you? Consider your motives in your life. What do they look like? Why do you do the things you do? This isn't a self-help. This is God looking at your heart and you're listening to the one who created you. Do you have wounds? Do you have desires and passions? Are you discouraged? Are you encouraged? Where are you on the heart scale? Sometimes I use these questions, and believe it or not, I, during the space series, I've, I went through this for six months, these questions. What am I believing right now? What am I believing right now? Am I believing some lies about my life? People telling me lies about my life? 
Am I telling me lies about my life? Do I believe them? How about this? What am I feeling right now? Am I happy? Am I mad? Am I distant all the time? Am I angry? Might be your heart. What am I most passionate about right now? Is it, is your answer nothing? You wouldn't believe how many times I'm sitting with people and praying with them and we pray that question and people say, I'm not passionate about anything right now. And because I'm an excellent counselor and full of compassion myself, I say, then you are not healthy. (laughs) There's brokenness going on. God did not create you to be a joyless person. It doesn't mean you're happy clappy all the time. That doesn't, isn't at all what I mean. I think you know me well enough to know that isn't at all what I mean. But if you're completely joyless and you aren't passionate about anything, then I would sniff your heart a little harder. What do I desire most? Allow God to renew your heart. Maybe you can relate to a few of these little heart things just to kind of help you as you're thinking through these questions. You worry about things a lot. You anticipate the future a lot. You fixate on the worst possible outcome of everything. Anticipation is not a bad thing. Get you ready. Blood gets on. Let's, Let's go, right? But I mean, is that your whole thing? What, we might say, what stresses you out? live in a 24-hour news cycle. Now we live in an every second news cycle. It's all in your pocket. Like, I don't know that we're designed to know everything all the time, everywhere. Are things setting you off more than normal, right? It might be your heart. Are you exhausted? You never take a break. You always think people are talking or thinking about you. And that then causes you to fixate on that. People don't think about you as much as you think they think about you. You know that, right? They just don't. So what should we do? How do we fixate on the right things? The, the Word of God says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your, you know the next part? Hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. I don't know what you smelled when you sniffed your heart. Maybe it didn't smell quite as bad as Gideon's was getting. I would fixate on that verse this week. You may be here and you're not a believer. You're not a Jesus follower. And I just want you to know God loves you. And he's inviting you right now to be part of his family. 
The Bible says, just like we sang that song earlier, that if you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart, huh, that's where that is. That Jesus died for your sins. He will save you. He will forgive you. And you can pray with me right now if you'd like to do that. You say, dear Jesus, I know I'm a sinner. I believe that you came in humility for me. I believe you died on the cross for me. I believe you were buried in the grave for me. I believe you rose from the grave for me. Come into my life. Be my Savior. Be my Lord. From this day forward, I will follow you. Amen. If you prayed that, I'd love to hear about it. You can come find me after the service. We'll pray together. We'll high five. We'll get your baptism scheduled. I'd love to hear about it a little bit.